Cuyahoga County is seeing a pretty interesting trend in diversification, the census shows. It's one of the stories we'll be talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Layla Atassi. Laura Johnston has taken the week off to visit her beloved Canada. Hope you guys enjoyed the weekend weather because we're not going to see weather like that for another week, yeah. it looks like. <laughs> could it have been lovelier? My gosh, just perfect. And it was it, perfect. Could it be uglier now? Yeah, but you know what? It's Man, right. you're a glass half empty uh, yeah. kind of person these days, Jane. <laughs> I would have been much more upset if we had rain all weekend and then today and tomorrow were like what we just had. At least we had it on the weekend and man, it was just idyllic. Let's begin. Why did a judge make such a quick decision to seize millions of dollars in assets from Sam Randazzo, who quit his job as head of the Ohio Utilities Commission after details about a $4.3 million bribe he received from First Energy began to surface? Jane Cahoon, Dave Yost went after this and got an almost immediate decision. Why? Yeah, he did. Well, apparently Randazzo has been moving to unload some pretty big assets. So Yost successfully got a judge to to freeze the proceeds. Since February, Randazzo has sold four properties in Ohio and Florida worth a total of $4.8 million. Uh, he transferred a $500,000 home in Columbus to his son. And uh, one of the properties that he sold was like a $3.9 million house in Naples, Florida, that included a dock and a, a boat lift, according to, to Yost. But Yost basically said those moves would make it more difficult to hold Randazzo financially accountable for accepting bribes. Although we should note that Randazzo has not been charged with any crime and he has denied that he did anything wrong. But He's been implicated by First Energy, which has admitted in court documents to to bribing him in exchange for a number of favors to help their business. But uh, Yost says we need to make sure that his assets are available for recovery when his time comes to pay. He also said, you know, if Randazzo's innocent, as he claims, we'll expect that he'll fully cooperate and we'll be able to locate these funds easily. Um, and th this all came about because Yost had filed a suit as a result of the House Bill 6 scandal. And um, he uh, he had just last week uh, sought to add Randazzo and, and two former First Energy executives to this lawsuit. Um, they want Randazzo to return this $4.3 million as well as his PUCO salary. So Anyway, that's where we what, stand. What if, though, what he's doing is trying to build a legal defense fund? Because it seems pretty inevitable that he will face some kind of charge. When you have a utility admitting in court they paid him a bribe, you would expect that the charge would come. Won't he need some money to be able to hire lawyers to defend him if they clean him out? How does he defend himself? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, obviously, he's already engaged <laughs> a lawyer. So, uh yeah, he's he's got to be thinking about that. He's no dummy. Well, good for Dave Yost trying to protect the public interest. It'll be interesting to see. I, I mean, at some point, you would expect that there'll be a development in this case that, that brings him into the fore instead of all these documents to keep basically saying he committed crimes without actually charging him with committing crimes. Right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
The census data released on Thursday revealed fascinating population shifts and changes in Cuyahoga County. How did black, white, Hispanic, and Asian populations change since 2010? Leila Tassi, the story put together on Friday was really, really eye-opening. It was. You know, our team, as we crunched the data, as the day unfolded, we just kept finding more and more trends that were, as you said, just fascinating. So we saw that every county saw an increase in people of color living living you know throughout every single community and also very interestingly more people identify as multiracial today than a decade ago which is i know is a fascinating trend that is being explored in, in national media too so countywide since 2010 the multiracial population nearly tripled the hispanic population more than tripled and the number of asian residents increased by a third there was simultaneously a 10% drop in the percentage of white residents and a 2.5% decrease in black residents. Cleveland saw its percentage of white, white people increase by three points over the last decade and its percentage of black residents decreased by four points. Meanwhile, the percentage of black residents increased in 28 out of 37 communities in the county. And the percentage of white people decreased in every city except East Cleveland, where it was pretty much the same as it was 10, 10 years ago. We saw huge gains in the number of Hispanic residents in places like Parma and Strongsville, especially. And in Solon and Beechwood, the Asian population boomed. So the experts we consulted said the changes are, are likely attributable to families leaving the city of Cleveland for better opportunities, you know, better schools and jobs and housing in the suburbs. Some cities like South Euclid, for example, have developed a reputation for their progressive housing policy. So that could really account for some of their population change. Personally, I've met at least a couple families that have sought out South Euclid specifically for that reason, that they know that the city would ensure that they wouldn't face housing discrimination when they move there. Unfortunately, the downside to that outward migration is that it, it creates a sort of vacuum in the inner city. There's no infill because of a lack of opportunities in, in, in the inner city. And, and wherever the population goes, it takes with it investments in infrastructure and other amenities. So for the sake of Cleveland and the inner ring, our experts said, you know, this could be the moment to more seriously consider regionalism as a, as a way to, you know, beyond that trend um, survive. So um, just really, really fascinating look at, at what has happened in the past decade. Um, yeah, check it out on Cleveland.com. Later this week, we expect uh, Eric Heisig, reporter Eric Heisig's story to land about critical race theory. He's been working on it a few Ooh. weeks. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by this clash that you've got people showing up at school boards all over Northeast Ohio, all over the country in this kind of engineered wedge issue pretty much screaming at the school boards to to not teach critical race theory. So I, I compare that to the increasing diversity in these towns, how the new the new residents there over the last 10 years feel about their neighbors going in to to scream this this invective about basic teachings in the classroom. I, I, I wonder if it's it's not unrelated. There's cause and effect that there are some people out there that that have racist kind of feelings that are feeling threatened now because their towns are diversifying. But it's it's really interesting. It's fascinating to me that Solon seems to be such a welcoming place for Asians. Um, that, that's a trend that had developed before. Uh, and a lot of the medical people who work in the, the hospitals in Cleveland chose to live there. But, but Solon must be doing something right to make people feel welcome. 
Um, the Parma changes. I mean, think about Parma for many, many decades. It was considered this lily white place that basically said no one else can enter. And there were lawsuits and all sorts of things. And look at what's happening there. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, Parma has has uh, has really diversified in the past decade. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, to your point about critical race theory, I happen to live in one of those communities <laughs> that is yeah, right. facing that awful, awful debate. And um, looking at the numbers, uh, you know, I, I I feel like the people who are putting forward that that argument so vehemently should be ashamed when they consider the you know how how many people of color have moved into the city and uh you know it, i mean these are our neighbors in our community you know members and how how dare you uh be so just f flagrantly uh racist uh toward them it's just uh i I'm, i hope that eric uh, is able to incorporate some of this data into his reporting in the coming weeks yeah, and, and well, his, his story should land, I think, Thursday and then Friday. There's a city club speech about critical race theory. So Northeast Ohioans will be hearing a lot about it. But now it's in the prism of what's happening with the census, which is pretty interesting. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are the people seeking to legalize marijuana in Ohio using the threat of a ballot question in next year's general election to persuade the legislature to legalize marijuana on their own? Jane Cahoon, this is an interesting political tactic, even though they claim that's not their purpose. <laughs> yeah, the people behind this legalization issue say, you know, they think it's good policy and that's why they're proposing it. They they said, you know, the politics will be what they will be and the legislature will just have to consider the implications, but they're certainly not framing it as as a threat. However, if if you're a Republican in the state of Ohio, you have to be thinking about the implications of of sharing the 2022 ballot with a marijuana issue. I mean, look what's on the ballot next year: <laughs> only an open U.S. Senate seat, the governor's race, as well as other statewide offices, the congressional and legislative races, and control of the Ohio Supreme Court too. So. Most of those offices are are controlled by Republicans, and they've got to be worried that a marijuana issue would bring out a lot of left-leaning voters. There, there's a higher level of support for legalization among Democrats than there is among Republicans, although generally public sentiment is pretty supportive of, of legalization. But but anyway, to your point, the, the way this works is that if the campaign collects enough signatures, it, it goes to the legislature. And then if the legislature decides not to approve it, they can collect more signatures and um, the campaign can get it on the ballot. Now, so that could motivate the legislature to do something on its own, just like they did several years ago when they they faced the real possibility of a medical marijuana issue being on the ballot. They, they created a medical marijuana program. Uh, but another interesting thing here is you've got Republicans like Mike DeWine, you know, who's opposed to marijuana legalization. And a lot of Republicans in the legislature wouldn't really be likely to embrace this either. But that could make them look, you know, really out of touch. But, um, you know, as with most things, this really isn't that that simple. Uh, uh, Andrew Tobias talked to an expert on this issue from the Marijuana Policy Project, and he said, you know, the, the effects could be marginal due to the shifting attitudes on this issue. And and this person thought that that a more likely driver of turnout in 2022 was going to be the race to succeed Rob Portman in the Senate. And um, and also he pointed out that 
Ohio is increasingly increasingly tilting Republicans. So, you know, that could still could be enough to counteract any any kind of boost that the Democrats uh, get. So, it, you know, it's hard to say, but I, yeah, I find I'm the not whole buying thing. that argument, though. I mean, Sherrod yeah. Brown won handily. You, th- that, th- there will be a fear. Look, it doesn't take much to swing an election. Right. And we saw that in the congressional to replace Marsha Fudge. And my bet is the Republicans do not want that question on the ballot, that they would much prefer to have nothing like it. They could counter it with some some cause on the ballot that would drive the conservative base, you know, some abortion related question or something if they don't want to just pass the legalization. But I, when I, when I read that part of the story, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not buying it. (laughs) There's too, I mean, the, the Supreme court, the Senate, the governor's office are all up for grabs in a state where, where a Democrat like Sherrod Brown has won fairly handily. It's, it's not as Republican as, as they would have you believe. We'll have to see that uh, they got to get the signatures. They got to get it, uh, get it considered before we move forward. It's a smart move. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why do court reform advocates argue that judges should not consider whether criminals have paid restitution when deciding whether to send them to jail or prison? Leila Tassi, we did a follow-up story to the big piece we did a week ago on a major sentencing disparity and the outrage it provoked. Uh, We heard from a bunch of people saying this wasn't about race. This wasn't about a white and a black woman getting different treatment. This was all about restitution, which I've explained is really actually about race because people in poverty can't pay it. So Corey Schaefer went out and did a follow-up story to his first one. What did he find? It was a great story by Corey, really connecting the dots here. So as you said, we've been talking a lot about these two cases in Cuyahoga County Police Court that illustrate the point. There was the white clerk in Chagrin Falls who stole $250,000 over 20 years from the village and paid it back out of her pension. So she was sentenced only to probation. Then, I think it was a day later, there was the black secretary at Maple Heights High School who stole 42000 from the district and couldn't pay it back because she had already drained her pension so that she could survive after she lost her job. So she was sentenced to 18 months in jail instead. Corey pointed out that whether a defendant has paid restitution is frequently considered when deciding upon a sentence and is seen as a mitigating factor. But critics told him that shouldn't be the case. Ronnie Dunn, an urban studies professor at CSU, Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley and Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Michael Donnelly all said restitution should not be the consideration in determining a defendant's sentence and that it could be viewed as buying one's way out of jail. And it makes it more likely that poor people would face harsher prison sentences than people who have the means to quickly make restitution. In Cuyahoga County, where U.S. Census Bureau data shows that people, that black people are more than three times as likely to live in poverty as their white neighbors, doing so is likely to result in judges disproportionately punishing black defendants. And that certainly appears to be true in these two controversial cases. The Chagrin Falls clerk, Debbie Bosworth, made as much as $61,000 and is married to a spouse who made $84,000 a year. And also he would eventually draw a public pension because I think he works for the sheriff's office. So she could afford to liquidate her pension to make restitution. 
Carla Hopkins, the the Maple Heights secretary, on the other hand, made $32,000 a year and had struggled with a gambling addiction, mental health problems and financial troubles, including addiction or eviction for much of her adult life. She she needed to dip into her pension to survive after she lost her job and she could only come up with $5,000 in restitution. I, I would add to this list of considerations uh, whether you can afford to hire an attorney. In this case, the Chagrin Falls defendant hired Ian Friedman. I'm, I'm not sure who represented the Maple Heights defendant, but if she was indigent, it was likely an overworked public defender or court-appointed court attorney. So ba- basically, people like Hopkins are, are being punished for their inability to pay. That's what the critics say. Consider the implications of that when as many as 80% of the 375,000 Ohio defendants who face potential jail time are indigent. The debate is not unlike the argument surrounding the bail reform initiative. So this was just terrific analysis by Corey Schaefer and uh, everyone to go read it. It's insidious, actually, whether intentional or not, it it builds into the system racist treatment. It was just like the difference in sentences for people who had powder cocaine versus crack cocaine. Oh, yeah. The crack cocaine sentences were far more severe, and those defendants were much more likely to be black than the mm-hmm, powder cocaine. Mm-hmm. And so you built into the system by by making these rules that don't seem to be aimed at race very racist. I mean, you, you, you're putting far more black people in, in prison and jail for doing the same thing as white people. And, and all of the, the people that came forward to say, this is about restitution. It's not about race. If it's about restitution, it is about race. And that was the mm-hmm. point, I think, of what the people in his story were saying. Really high quality stuff. Good job by Corey. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost so anxious about getting more cities in the state to sign on to an $800 million plus settlement with drug companies for their role in the opioid crisis? Jane Cahoon, he held up a big clock for effect <laughs> when he had his press conference. Oh, yes, stole my line. I was going to say, you got to love it. You know, he poses with a giant clock. Anyway, he, he basically says time is run, running out. Local governments have until Friday to decide whether to accept this proposed settlement. Otherwise, he said the companies will withdraw their offer and the state's going to have to go to court next month. But um, as you said, it's an $800 million plus settlement proposal from the the nation's three largest pharmaceutical distributors and uh, drug maker Johnson & Johnson to settle these lawsuits related to the, their role in the opioid epidemic. So Yost said Friday that at a bare minimum, local governments representing at least 95% of the population of the governments involved in the litigation need to agree to this settlement. And as of Friday afternoon, I think they had about 86%. So he, he was pretty blunt about it. He, he, um, he said, you know, right now we're at the point of deal or no deal. And the companies, you know, frankly, aren't interested in deals that leave these lawsuits out there hanging. And um, so Jeremy Pelzer checked in with the Ohio Municipal League about this and, and was told that, you know, there doesn't seem to be like a lot of opposition to the, the proposed settlement. It's more a matter of local governments, you know, only being given a few weeks to approve the deal. And, and some of these, especially during the summertime, maybe they only meet like once a month. So they've been kind of scrambling around to to get together and and uh, sign off on it. And so that they can meet this uh, threshold. He seems to say the danger is if you if we don't get this and we everybody goes to court, uh, the 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 
findings could end up bankrupting the companies and people could get little or nothing, that this is a guaranteed way of getting some compensation for for the hell that everybody has been through. Uh, and he, seem, he seems like he's pretty worried that yeah. this might fall apart. Yeah, they um, the under this agreement, 55% of the money would go to a foundation to pay for addic- addiction treatment programs, and 30% would go to local governments, and the remaining 15% would go to the state. Uh, but then if that doesn't happen, if they they go to court, that agreement would be voided and it would be up to state lawmakers to decide how to distribute any money that the court awards. Or the cities sue on their own and, and yeah. the legislature out of it. But, but I, you know, they probably don't have the appetite for that either. I, it, it was interesting where this was, nobody's fighting this. They just really didn't get a whole lot of notice and didn't realize it was such an urgent thing. So maybe his press conference will move this along by Friday. Otherwise, we may see a lot of lawsuits. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does St. Louis's work to bring more people to the famous City Arch is a lesson for Cleveland as it entertains an idea for Dee and Jimmy Haslam for developing the Cleveland Lakefront. Leila Tassi, we sent Steve Litt to St. Louis because it's an example in some ways of what we're trying to do here. He had a big package about it this weekend. He's doing a piece on Cincinnati for next weekend. What are the the lessons we might take from St. Louis? So in 2015, St. Louis and a bunch of government business and private donors built this 250 foot wide landscape pedestrian bridge over the interstate highway trench that had really severed the city's downtown from the famous gateway arch. That's a 630 foot high arc of stainless steel. Before then, getting to the arch was pretty dangerous. You had to navigate past a three-lane highway. Now, Steve Litt reports that the passage to that arch is just lovely and safe and seamless and, in his word, gorgeous. Of course, St. Louis's experience has has lessons for Cleveland. Jimmy and Dee Haslam, the co-owners of, of the NFL Browns, several months ago proposed extending the downtown mall uh, north to the city's lakefront over railroad tracks and the shoreway like the pedestrian bridge in St. Louis, and extending the mall north over the divide would improve access to all the lakefront attractions, including the Rock Hall, the Great Lakes Science Center, and of course, First Energy Stadium, where the Browns play. Right now, you have to take sidewalks along West 3rd and East 9th Street, and the walk is super unpleasant. So Steve, you know, launched a series of stories looking first at the St. Louis Project and the next week at another big waterfront effort in Cincinnati to see what uh, what Cleveland can take away from that. A third article will summarize takeaways from both cities. And the comparison is, is appropriate, um, given how much St. Louis and Cleveland have in common beyond being big Midwest cities and, and facing this quandary of repairing the damage done when highways tore through the town and divided people from access to the city's greatest attractions. St. Louis and Cleveland have both also attempted to revive their downtowns through sports, entertainment, and tourism, including waterfront attractions built largely or entirely at public expense. Steve Litt, as always, delivers with this story. It's a must-read on Cleveland.com. Yeah, what was what was interesting was the land bridge because he really gave you a feel for it in his description and oh, the yeah. photos that we published. If you're on that land bridge, you don't feel like you're on top of a big highway, which is which is the goal. Um, and and it seems like they did successfully tie the two together. There's no economic development 
around it like we're expecting to see in Cleveland, but I don't know that there was much opportunity for that. One of the most interesting things in the story to me is they had not long ago, I think in the last 20 years, built this massive parking garage near the arch because it was so hard to get to. They wanted people to have easier access but but all it did was isolate it more. You'd go to right. the parking garage, you visit the arch, you had no connection to the uh, to the city, and so they tore that down to uh, for this project. That garage is gone, uh, so that people will park in the city and wander over. Very interesting engineering of of public space. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is the purpose of the hearings being scheduled around the state by a commission charged with redrawing the state's legislative maps, possibly the congressional maps, to reduce gerrymandering? Jane Coon, it's always good when when commissions like this go out and listen to the public. But do we actually think they're really going to (laughs) listen? Well, I was going to say, Chris, that a cynic perhaps would say they're they're going through the motions of of hearing from the public because they have to. And then the Republicans who control this process are just going to go ahead and get in a private room and try to gerrymander the heck out of the map like they did the last time. Uh, Although there's at least some guardrails that would make that difficult this this time around. But Let's put cynicism aside and, and say these meetings are being held around the state to, to give citizens an opportunity to weigh in with their ideas about the redistricting process. So they, they start a week from today. They've got them all over the state. They, the, the one a week from today, um, the first one is at Cleveland State, and they go through Friday. They're, they're going to be in Youngstown, Dayton, Cincinnati, Akron, Toledo, Mansfield, and, and other cities, too other smaller cities too. Um, so this commission, the Ohio Redistricting Commission, is responsible for drawing the legislative maps. And as you said, they may also have a role in the drawing of the congressional maps if that effort fails in the um, in the legislature. So there's uh, there are five Republicans um, in this group and two Democrats. Uh, the five Republicans are House Speaker Bob Cupp, Senate President Matt Huffman, Governor Mike DeWine, Auditor Keith Faber, and Secretary of State Frank LaRose. And then the two Democrats are Senator Vernon Sykes and House Minority Minority Leader Amelia Sykes. And they happen to be father and daughter, both from Akron, but they're they're the only um, Democrats on this commission, although they do have to get some buy-in from them on on these things. It's odd that both of the Democrats are from the same city and same family. You would have thought one of them might have been from downstate. So I'm the cynic. I think they're doing this because they have to, and then they'll go sit in the quiet back room and do what they want. But this is a chance for people to put on the record their opposition to certain things. I know a lot of people in Cleveland's eastern suburbs are worried that this will somehow be a process by the Republicans to create a safe Democratic district for Amelia Sykes to run for Congress, to win her over to approving whatever dastardly deeds they do. And the only way to do that really would be to take the eastern suburbs of Cleveland in time to Akron, which the eastern suburbs have nothing to do with. So I imagine this is a chance for people in the eastern suburbs of Cleveland to appear before the commission and say, don't do that. That we want to be mm-hmm. contiguous to Cleveland because we share the same issues. Leila Tassi talked earlier in the podcast about regionalism. It would be hard to have regionalism if half of the county <laughs> is tied to Akron. So, so I, you know, even though they will do whatever they're going to do, putting it on the record, I guess, makes it easier later to challenge what they're up to. For for sure, and and people, you know, I mean, they, they shouldn't have the impression that that what they say doesn't matter. The you know, the public's voice does matter, and um, 
We'll just have to see if they listen. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm going to leave it there. I've got a chat with Google in a few minutes about the right to be forgotten effort they're funding with this. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another discussion of the news. Mm-hmm.